With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Planet Football Podcast is brought to you by FanDuel, the leader in one-week fantasy football with more winners and more payouts than any other site. Enter promo code PLANET at FanDuel.com to play a risk-free tournament for up to $10. We're also sponsored by the SeatGeek app, the smartest way to buy and sell tickets for your favorite sports team. Download the SeatGeek app and enter our code PLANET for $20 off your first purchase. Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor Avi Creditor, joined today by SI senior writer Grant Wall, SI.com's Ben Littleton. A little later on, we will welcome in SI.com's Brian Strauss, and we also have an excellent interview, Grant, that you did with soccer analytics expert Daniel Altman. Uh, so a lot of a lot of fun stuff to get into today. Grant, first off, welcome back to New York. You've been Thanks. about seven different countries in the last five days. So. I've been, including Baltimore, which I consider a separate country. <laughs> I, I love Baltimore, actually. Um, but uh, Baltimore, Antigua, L.A., I'm leaving for Munich on Sunday. Wow. That's crazy. Racking yeah. up but the miles. Fun, but R- fun and productive. Racking up the miles. It's awesome. Uh, ben, welcome. How, how are you? We're happy to have you back. Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Good to be here. Fantastic. Uh, we want to start with some some transfer talk. Uh, transfer window is open for another couple of weeks. Um, and Ben, I guess my first question for you is, you know, we hear a lot of names batted around the, the Lewandowski level and, and things like that. Which big realistic names might we see move on uh, in this window? Well, not many. Um, and there are two reasons. One is um, because there's a a major tournament in the summer. It's very rare that a big name player makes a move six months before a tournament because he doesn't want to risk his international place. So um, all the guys competing in the Euros, the people, the players that are going to move are likely to be those that are not getting regular game time at their clubs. So I guess Benteke is an example of that, although every week we hear Jurgen Klopp saying he um, appreciates him and, and has a plan for him. No one quite knows what it is, <laughs> but it's clear that uh, you know he has definitely fallen behind Romelu Lukaku in the pecking order to start for Belgium in the summer. Now, I'm not suggesting that Benteke will leave Liverpool just because of that. Um, in fact, he's more likely to leave because Liverpool might sign another striker for <laughs> 25 million pounds as well. But you know, those are the reasons why. For example, Kevin Morales, who's not a top-tier player, but is not getting much game time at Everton, might take a loan move somewhere for six months to get some game time. Um, The other interesting thing at the moment, specific to this window, is that the Premier League is so tight at the moment, with five points separating the top four sides, and United, who are seven points off the top, but have a coach, Van Gaal, who thinks they're still in the title race. That actually, if one of these big boys buys one or two big players, that really could tilt the balance in their favour. This Premier League is totally up for grabs. And when I say big boys, I actually include Leicester City in that as well. If they decided to really throw the kitchen sink at this challenge this season, 
and bought two or three players for big money, you know, they could certainly secure a place in the top four, but really push all the way as well. So I think it's going to be a busy last 10 days of the window. I think one player to watch is Ed- Edinson Cavani at PSG, who's been spoken about, well, every window really since he joined PSG. But I guess this is relevant to MLS as well. Ibrahimovic has not signed a new contract at PSG. It's, it's up in the, in the summer, as everyone knows, and he's expected to, to move to MLS. But there is talk now starting in France that maybe PSG try and extend it for one more year because Cavani, who was expected to replace Ibra as the main guy, is just not is just not settled in properly. He's cost them 64 million euros. He's been dropped for the last two games, uh, starting on the bench. The the French paper L'Equipe have called him a true lone wolf. He's just not integrated into the squad at all. And, you know, if United come in for a with a big money bid for him, this window, he could move. And, of course, the transfer ban um, that's affected Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid means that PSG might not be able to buy Cristiano Ronaldo in the summer, which was what was expected to happen and certainly would have happened had Rafa Benitez seen out the season in Madrid. And now Zidane is there. All that has changed as well. But everything is linked to everything. And, and that even means Ibra might not end up in the States after all. But I, there's still going to be some twists and turns in the last 10 days. Don't don't take away that hope. We need Ibra in the States. That's... I just want to say for a second here that Avi Creditor is the biggest Latin Ibrahimovic fan I have ever encountered. And that includes <laughs> PSG fans and Sweden fans. Uh, and you're really disappointing him if his arrival in MLS will be delayed. That would that would be devastating. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, Avi. I mean, it's not for certain. I still think MLS is favorite, but it, it is a twist because even... Uh, the PSG players have started saying, yeah, it'd be really great if Ibra stayed for one more year. So, you know, just watch this space. Well, if you think about it, if if the plan all along is to end up at David Beckham's Miami team, he's going to need something to do next year anyway, because that team's not starting until 2018 at the earliest anyway. So uh, that that wouldn't be uh, the worst case scenario for for all the Ibra fans in the States. And and then on top of that, like you said, the the transfer ban uh, to Real Madrid and, and Atletico Madrid. Um Grant, uh, let's, let's start with you on this. Just just the impact of this and how it might. And Ben, you wrote about this. There just there's so many levels and layers to to who this impacts and and just the big names and the, and the big clubs. Grant, uh, just your your thoughts on how this impacts everything. Well, I do think it's important to note that uh, the January transfer window definitely not affected for right. these two clubs by this ban, and probably the summer window will not be affected due to the appeals process. Uh, so. Everyone's saying that Cristiano Ronaldo was definitely staying at Real Madrid for the season after this. Uh, not necessarily the case, but maybe the case. You know, it, it's um, uh, you know, he could move in the summer. Uh, I think that that's at least the options when you look at the Barcelona case uh, and how that played out through the appeals process. Uh, but as Ben notes, Zidane is uh, different from Benitez and, and seems to be saying positive things publicly about. Uh, Ronaldo lately. So I, I think this also greatly affects the younger uh, parts of the clubs, the development systems. Uh, we've seen what happened with Ben Letterman, the young American who was at Barcelona and wasn't allowed to play in Barcelona's academy to play games for a year and then eventually had to go to the Bradenton Academy in Florida. Which is basically the same thing as Barcelona, let's be honest. <sighs> uh, no comment. <laughs> and, you know, that's a huge impact 
uh, on foreign kids who've gone to to play for Barcelona's development system. So uh, that's going to affect uh, Atletico Madrid and, and Real Madrid as well. They have fewer foreign kids coming and less of a reputation for developing players, but they still have systems. Yeah, and uh, and and Ben, going back to the piece that that you wrote, just the the number of names impacted, right? Like Eden Hazard, like he. If he was going to go to Real Madrid, maybe now that doesn't happen. The same with Lewandowski. Um, just, I guess, how, how does this change the the plans of these two clubs who are competing with Barcelona, who actually ended up winning everything possible in, in the middle of their transfer ban? Yeah, well, they top-loaded at the beginning of it, as as Grant suggested. So Real Madrid may have the summer to, to top-load. Barcelona bought Rakitic and Luis Suarez while the process of appeal was going on, and that didn't turn out too badly, <laughs> but most 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 people who follow Spanish football would say, "Why do why do Real Madrid need to buy Hazard or Lewandowski or another Galactico this summer?" Because you know the big problem they've got this season is there's no space in the side for Isco, for James Rodriguez, for Hesse. So you know buying another big name striker is just going to cause them more problems. Why don't they just develop their own and work with a the squad they've got? They've got enough good players there. Um, the one guy that Zidane does want is Paul Pogba. So um, he will almost certainly leave Juventus this summer. Um, the problem is Florentino Perez really does not get on with the agent of Pogba, Mina Raiola. But Zidane and Pogba are quite close. They actually had dinner with each other last May at a time when Zidane thought he might be the man to replace Ancelotti when people knew Ancelotti was leaving and Zidane thought his time would come, but it, it didn't prove to be at that moment. But Zidane will try and buy Pogba at some point. Um, so I'd watch that one. And then, of course, it comes down to players leaving as well. So you're not going to sell Cristiano Ronaldo at the moment your, your transfer ban kicks in. But from the Atletico side, do you keep Griezmann or do you sell Griezmann? And he is a guy that is really could be the biggest Galactico of next summer. I mean, if France do well at the Euros on home soil, Griezmann is likely to be their talisman, their main player, especially as Benzema um, is not in uh, contention at the moment. I mean, it's astonishing that Atletico are top of the Spanish league at the moment. And the guy that's put them there is Griezmann because he scores so many goals. They win so many games 1-0 and Griezmann scores so many of those goals. He specialises in scoring opening goals. And when you've got a defence like Atletico's, I think they've conceded eight goals this season. So um, he, you know, his future is, is really dependent on how Atletico approach this. But from a squad point of view, I don't think Atletico are in that bad shape. They have two very good strikers who are out on loan at the moment. Borja Gonzalez, who scored over 10 goals for Ibar this season. Um, he's a fantastic player. And a lot of Premier League clubs are looking at him for this window. Um, but I, I guess they're not going to sell him just in case they decide to get rid of Griezmann in the summer. And the other is Leo Baptistao, who's at Villarreal. So they've got a big squad, 24 players at the moment and plenty at 10 more out on loan. So I think if they don't appeal the ban and just suck it up, they can still be contenders next year. Real Madrid, I think how well they do next season is more in doubt. Yeah, very, very interesting times indeed. I love the petty differences between agents and, and managers and team presidents and how that gets in the way of, of potentially just good, sensible business. It makes sense that Pogba would, would play for Zidane given uh, given the French connection, given the Real Madrid and, and Juventus connection, given how Pogba's been earmarked for Real Madrid, it seems for 
for years now. Um, ben, thank thank you so much for all that insight. If it sounds like Ben knows what he's talking about, it's because he does. Read his column on Planet Football every Monday. His Around Europe piece uh, kind of recaps all, all the biggest storylines going around in Europe, including the transfer window. Uh, ben, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, guys. Uh, we're going to take a, a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to kind of riff off of uh, the, the transfer talk with soccer analytics expert Daniel Altman. And, and part of that is, is kind of how teams identify players. Uh, and, and Daniel has a, a very impressive and incredible system uh, and just a, a wealth of knowledge. So definitely stay tuned for that. We'll have that when we come back. Whether you're looking to buy tickets to a game or sell tickets you can't use, you need to check out SeatGeek, the smartest way to buy and sell tickets for your favorite sports team. Now, when I go to MLS games or tell friends about going to MLS games, SeatGeek is the go-to place. Whenever I have an extra ticket for a game or a concert, SeatGeek's my place to use. I, I use it to, to sell it to a friend, to another fan. It's great. Here's how it works. SeatGeek pulls all the ticket buying and selling options from other ticket sites into one place to save you time. SeatGeek also knows the fair market value of every ticket, and they use that information to show you the best deals and help you find underpriced seats. If you have tickets you can't use, SeatGeek will help you price your tickets on their site so that you can quickly sell them to another fan. SeatGeek also has the lowest fees of any ticket site out there and always shows you the full price up front. We've got a special offer for our listeners as well. Uh, you can get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase, and here's how you do it. You download the free SeatGeek app, go to the setting tabs, and click add a promo code. Enter our promo code PLANET, and SeatGeek will then send you $20 once you've made your first ticket purchase. So, download the free SeatGeek app and enter our promo code PLANET today. We have a terrific guest on this week's Planet Football podcast. He's Daniel Altman, the founder of North Yard Analytics, and he's one of the most fascinating people working in the field of soccer analytics today. Thanks for joining me, Dan. Thanks a lot for having me, Grant. First off, I want to tell the story of how we met, uh, which was kind of cool. It was at a dinner party in New York, and uh, you meet interesting people at dinner parties in New York, but you were there. I come, I meet you, and I'm told that you are not only a soccer guy, but have lived in Argentina and run an Argentine wine website, and I have deep love for Argentina and Argentine wine, so you can imagine I was pretty excited that night. Well, I was excited too because uh, I knew you by reputation, and uh, you know it's not every day that uh, you you meet a sports celebrity of sorts, especially in the sport that you like the most. And I think I made some uh, uh, offhand, probably off-color comment about your resemblance to Michael Bradley, and then we it was a house on fire after that. So here we are on the podcast, and uh, I, I, first off, before we get into specifics of soccer analytics. Uh, and what you're doing with it. Uh, I wanted to, you to tell your story, your personal story a little bit, because it's pretty interesting. How did you get into full-time soccer analytics? What were you doing before that? So I trained as an economist. I went straight from undergrad into grad school and did my doctorate in economics uh, with a real focus on applying microeconomic theory and using statistics to tease out uh, things that happen as a result of public policies and things that happen in the corporate sphere. Uh, and then after that, I did a bunch of different jobs because I pretty much knew by the end of grad school that I didn't really want to be a professor, at least for the peak years of my life, what I viewed to be the peak years, the 20s and 30s, because it's really tough when you have to try and get tenure at a university and you're working so many hours a day, so many different projects. I wanted to have a little more fun. 
So uh, I was very lucky. I, I lucked into a job at The Economist in London. Uh, I was the economics correspondent there and writing the economics focus column. That was fun. Met a lot of interesting people. Then I came to the New York Times back in New York. Uh, I worked in the British government. I did some more journalism. Then I joined an international consulting firm, uh, working mostly on uh, global development. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote a bunch of books along the way, and I was about to write another book. It was about what rich countries could learn from poor countries in running their health systems and school systems, things like that. And I was about to leave for a trip. I was going to go to Sri Lanka and Poland and Ireland to scout some of these uh, different public policies and, and how they worked. And I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I just wasn't that excited. I was about to teach a class at NYU where I've been teaching for a few years. And, and I went to my office and I called the airlines. I canceled everything. And I finished my class. And then I kind of thought, well, what am I going to do now? Uh, I was going to take a little break. And I'd been playing around with soccer data casually since the 2006 World Cup. I made a really simple model that actually ended up doing a pretty good job predicting World Cup results. And I thought, well, what, what, what more can I do with this? Can I look at club soccer? You know, I was curious about my team, Newcastle. What could I see statistically about the players on the team over there in the Premier League? And uh, as I got more and more into it, I, I got some statistical software. I purchased some data from Opto, which is probably one of the world's biggest data providers for soccer. And uh, I kind of got excited about some of the stuff that I was finding. So uh, I, I founded a little limited liability company. And uh, two years later, I'm doing it full time. Well, I remember when I first met you, uh, you weren't sure if the full time thing was going to happen. And now it is happening. And while you can't give away the names of the people you're working with in clubs, you are working with clubs, correct? Yeah, I mean, I got an email this morning from a sporting director asking me to check out a few players. Uh, I got another one yesterday from sporting director at a different team. Uh, I'm working with several clubs during this transfer window, and and it really varies. You know, in some clubs I am working uh, right at the top level, even sometimes with the owner directly. Um, but sometimes I'm working with people a little bit lower down on the totem pole, and we're checking names of players back and forth. We're looking at tactical stuff. We're looking at uh, stylistic stuff. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different ways that analytics can be used in clubs, and, and I've been lucky to experience it almost every way. And, and I'm also working with some agents and investment groups and even software developers who are all curious to try and figure out what the data are telling them about games and players. Can you say which countries these clubs are in you're working with? Well, I think I can say that I, I do work in the Premier League. I, I have worked uh, uh, in the Premier League for a while, um, MLS, uh, other competitions around the world, Champions League. Uh, so some, some pretty big teams and some not quite so big teams, but it's always exciting. So let's dive in a little bit. First off, uh, Dan's Twitter handle is at uh, Altman Daniel, uh, and we'll get back to that again later, but uh, he has a good Twitter feed, uh, links to a lot of his North Yard analytics stuff that are out on the web. Uh, as far as the stuff you're working on, um, how do clubs use analytics right now? Because I know there are some misconceptions out there about analytics in sports, in soccer, and a lot of times those misconceptions are connected to the term Moneyball being thrown around. Well, I think Moneyball, as it was portrayed in the book and the movie in baseball, uh, was really about trying to figure out what the low-hanging fruit were in baseball so that you could do a lot with a little. You, know, you could take a team that didn't have a huge budget, figure out some ways of playing and some players 
who could help you to win more games than you might otherwise do given the salary that you had. And, you know, we use that kind of, we do that kind of stuff in soccer as well, no doubt. Um, there are teams that don't have the biggest budgets that want to try and get more bang for their buck, and they're interested in tactics and they're interested in players. But I think we do a lot of other stuff too. Sometimes we're interested in a playing style, for example. Mm -hmm. We want to find teams that play a certain style, which we can identify using data, because those teams could be loan destinations for players, or they could be the places where you're going to find your next coach. Uh, we want to see players who are used to playing that style, who might be good transfer targets. Um, so, so that's something that's quite subtle. Mm -hmm. can be very interesting and creative to try and identify a style using data. Uh, we could also be interested in things like long-term planning, you know, mm -hmm. trying to forecast where our team is going to finish at the end of the season when we're midway through the season so we know what we need to do if that's not the target that we're aiming for. Uh, so I think that there are a lot of tools that we use that can help teams both with the more subtle things and with some of the longer-term decisions in addition to those sort of everyday tactical and recruiting decisions. Okay. What are some of the things you've been working on that might be – uh, different from what some other analytics people are working on? Well, I think the stylistic stuff is getting more popular. I think when I started doing that, there weren't a f too many people doing that. Um, what I'm probably most excited about now is bringing in ideas from other sciences to try and understand what happens during games. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some people, uh, for example, at Prozone, um, Paul Power and uh, Hector Ruiz, who are trying to bring in ideas from dynamic systems to understand how players interact with each other. I have some ideas coming from some other fields that I want to bring in. But I'm very leery of putting in too much complexity mm -hmm. because anything that I do, I need to be able to explain it to my clients, mm -hmm. how it works, so that they trust it and they're willing to use it. Um, and I think that when you bring in ideas from fields that you need a graduate degree really to understand, then you're not going to get a lot of traction. Uh, another thing, though, that I would mention is that often when I start out, I find it's most useful to use the knowledge that already exists inside the clubs mm -hmm. and make it as powerful as possible. For mm -hmm. example, uh, if you're recruiting players, let's say you have a great scout in the French League. And so you say, well, I really trust this guy in the French League. If he says a player from the French League is a good player, then that's a good player. Great. Okay, so let's create an algorithm on the computer that would identify the same players in the French League as your scout, but only using data. Mm -hmm. Once you trust that that algorithm would act as exactly the same way as your scout, then you can set it loose on other leagues around the world. It's as though you cloned that scout, taken all of his skills, and now you can send them to Russia or Denmark or Japan or wherever you want, wherever there's data collected in the same format. And this is a way that you can build trust with clubs because you're saying, we're not asking the computer to tell you something that you don't already know. We're taking the knowledge you already have and we're making it that much more powerful. And that is sort of going against the whole narrative we've seen that analytics is basically the opposite of long-term knowledge of scouts. Yeah, I, I mean, it's absolutely false to say that it's a substitute. It's really a complement. In fact, analytics in its best use is probably a first cut for narrowing down a player pool of potentially thousands of players for even a, one position to, let's say, 50 players, and then let the scouts do their work. 
you know? And then if you want to do more intense data analysis down the road, great. But uh, it can really save you a lot of time and it can expand your reach. Uh, so it's definitely complementary. And one of the most interesting things is figuring out ways to make decisions using a combination of technical scouting with data and the sort of usual traditional scouting because you need to create a rule. You sort of say, well, am I going to accept a player if either the technical scout or the traditional scout says he's good? Or do I have to have both of them say he's good? Do I want to bring other names into the process, other decision makers? How do I structure that uh, decision? And, and I think this is fascinating. And, and the more we track the success rates of the traditional scouts and technical scouts together, the more we can come up with a formal rule that's really going to reduce our errors. Mm -hmm. So that we're when we think we're getting a star, we're really getting a star, and we're not going to miss many stars that we think might actually be duds. We're in the middle of the transfer window in January right now, and I wanted to ask you about how uh, analytics can be useful to clubs uh, during the transfer window. Yeah, well, uh, it, it's definitely a way to increase their reach. Mm. Uh, right now, for one team, for example, I'm scouting 10 or 11 leagues at a time. Mm. So I have a database of several thousand players, and I'm updating it with every game, essentially, and, and I can tell you, hey, you know, here's a guy at a league that you don't scout very intensely, or maybe you're not scouting at the moment. He's played 1,500 minutes this year in the league, which is a good number of minutes to, to get a beat on him with data, and he looks good. You know, if I do a, a list of players who, who fit certain criteria, let's say I might get five players who I know are really good players, and he's the sixth one. So you've got this list of what look like really good players and one name you don't recognize, maybe it's time to go check that guy out. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe next time your scout goes to that league, ask him to keep an eye on that player too. Uh, but, but it can really create a lot of context because scouts can't watch every player every match. And so they get a small sample of what that player can do, which is a valuable sample. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it gives you context because if, if something that they see is not typical of what the player did over the last 10 or 20 games that he played – this allows you to find that. So I think that we're seeing two things. We're, we're seeing it used as a first cut, as I mm -hmm. said before, and we're also seeing it as a sort of deeper dive to try and get context and understand what the long-term tendencies of the player might be. Okay. Now, I want to run a couple things by you that I've sort of heard uh, whenever I ask around, particularly about like Premier League and, and the use of analytics there. Basically, everyone says we're using analytics, but when you ask who's really using it, you get a different answer of very few teams are actually really using it. Uh, and then you've got even the teams that I'm told are really using it, like Liverpool, um, they don't seem to appear to outperform their wage bill. Uh, so is analytics not working right for them? What, how would you answer those questions? So Liverpool has had an analytics department in-house for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's run, I think, according to everything public, by a guy named Ian Graham, who is a Cambridge physics PhD, uh, undoubtedly a smart guy. And uh, it's not completely clear how much of a say they have in transfers. There's been a lot of news reporting on that. Uh, but there is a transfer committee at Liverpool, so presumably they have some input into that. The thing about Liverpool is the following. We have to ask what their goal is. If your goal as a club is to win trophies, but you don't have as much money as the top clubs in the league, then you need to take some gambles. You need to roll the dice sometimes. And sometimes you might come up 
double sixes and you win the trophy. But sometimes you might come up snake eyes and you're much further down than you were the previous season. But that kind of variance, that kind of volatility in results is what a club like Liverpool needs if it wants to win a trophy because it needs to expand the range of possibilities. Right. <laughs> and I think that's what they're doing because if you look at their results versus their wage bill in the last several seasons, they have kind of bounced up and down mm -hmm. a bit. If you look at a club like Arsenal, which also uses analytics intensely, according to what we know publicly, then it's a totally different philosophy, so it seems. They always overperform their wage bill by a little bit. They're never below what you would expect, uh, but they don't have that variance. Mm -hmm. And indeed, Arsenal, they typically finish third or fourth every season. They, they don't tend to win the Premier League. They don't tend to win the Champions League, but they're always there mm -hmm. with a chance, and they're very consistent, and, and that's maybe what you expect. So different analytics departments may have different goals, and so they may act differently. And people who generalize about analytics and saying it's only meant to do one thing or the observable results will only fit one set of characteristics are missing that subtlety. Okay, interesting. Um, one thing you and I had talked about before, which I, I find very intriguing, is the study of goalkeepers using analytics. And I just wanted to get your sense. You've been working on goalkeeping a lot lately. What are you finding? I love working on goalkeeping. <laughs> It's just, it's, it's, it's such a mysterious science. I mean, you really feel like you're out there in the ether somewhere trying to grasp onto small items of truth. Um, but, but part of that is because there's so much noise around the signal. Mm -hmm. um, lots of things can affect what looks like a goalkeeper's performance. Uh, goalkeeper's performance defends, depends on the defenders in front of him. Uh, many other things, it, it, you know, even if you just are trying to judge you know, what's the conversion rate against him versus the quality of the shots that he's facing, something simple like that, there can be a lot of noise from season to season. And so when we look at goalkeepers, we tend to want to look at long series of data, maybe look at 500 or 1,000 shots mm. that he's faced to try and figure out uh, whether he has any discernible skill that makes him above average as a shot stopper. And, and that kind of thing actually does tend to give you some results. Um, you can't be completely sure that he's going to replicate that result in the next season because there is so much noise. But you know that if you have this guy on your, on your club for, for five seasons, he's probably going to give you above average results. The thing is, though, we can look at so many different aspects of a goalkeeper's performance. It's not just about shot stopping, right? Mm -hmm. It's about organizing the defense, starting moves forward, uh, it's about cleaning up after a rebound. Uh, it's about claiming crosses that would otherwise turn into shots. And, and what we need to do is see how many of these things allow us to identify that skill in the long term, because not all of them do. And then can we add them up to see sort of how many goals or how many points that goalkeeper is going to be worth to us over a season in expectation? And, and it's a really complex calculation to try and put all of that together. What I tend to do with clubs is just show them the individual characteristics because they may not uh, give the same weight to all of those things. Mm -hmm. They may have preferences about what they think is important and what's not. They say, well, we don't need him to claim all the crosses because we have fantastic center backs who are going to clear everything. Mm -hmm. uh, but but you know, in, in each case, you want to show those different skills and you want to show how important they could be in the long term. Okay. I, I remember talking to Brad Friedel once for a story, and he would argue... Uh, that a good goalkeeper was worth potentially double-digit points 
uh, over the course of a season. Do you agree with that? Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And I think goalkeepers are probably some of the most undervalued players in the market, mm. especially because I think people do a poor job of assessing these other skills mm. that are just as important. You know, I mentioned shot stopping and I mentioned cleaning up after mm. an initial shot, right? Because if a shot doesn't turn into a goal, there are a lot of things that can happen. It can mm. be a rebound, it can be go out for a corner, it can bounce off the post, who knows? Um, and those two things are actually quite different. You've got some goalkeepers who are excellent at stopping the initial shot, but if havoc ensues afterward, then they're completely at sea. And you have some who are the opposite. You know, uh, Ben Ben Foster, for example, Mm -hmm. who's coming back from injury now at West Brom, um, not one of the all-time greatest shot stoppers, but that guy controls his area when things happen. Mm -hmm. And so that guy's still going to win you some points. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, the very best of them who do both well yeah, they could easily be worth double-digit points for you. Okay, interesting. Now, you were in Baltimore uh, recently for uh, the MLS draft. You had MLS GMs and coaches there. It was also the National Soccer Coaches Convention with hundreds, probably thousands of coaches <laughs> down there. And uh, I know you met with some MLS teams. Uh, what is unique, what's different about MLS and the areas you work in? So there's a lot different. If you start out working with the Premier League and then you take your algorithms to MLS, you find you need to make some changes. You need, well, you need something that works more universally. And, and the reason is the following. So when players reach the Premier League, they're already playing at an extremely high level. And that means that a goalkeeper who's facing shots in the Premier League is usually facing pretty good shots most of the time. And when you're trying to judge a goalkeeper against those shots, then you sort of have a good idea that the quality of shots that he's facing is more or less the same game to game, season to season. In MLS, there's a lot more variance. There are some players who are great shooters, and there are some players who are terrible shooters who would never make it in the Premier League. And so because you have that much more variance, it's important to calibrate your model so that you're not giving a goalkeeper the same credit for stopping a lousy shot as you would for stopping a good shot. Mm. And it works the same if you look at the flip side for strikers. So that needs adjustment. But there are many other ways that MLS is different. And one of my favorites is the fact that pay and performance have much lower correlation in that (laughs) league than in many of Europe's top leagues. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why it is. I know that there are some players who probably signed for marketing purposes more than anything else, and they get paid a lot of money because they bring money to the club. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they may not show it on the field in the same way. Uh, and there's also a huge concentration in where the money goes. Uh, on some teams, at least, you know, 80, 90 percent of the salary could be on the strikers. Mm-hmm. And you've got peanuts for the rest of the team. And I found out some interesting things that go along with this. For example, the teams that spread the money out a little bit more across the field over all the different positions tend to do a little bit better. Mm because you've got fewer uh, weak links, as it were. You know, you've, you've got more uniform quality over the field. Uh, so that's one type of money ball that you could play in MLS. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think that, that pay-for-performance thing really gives you huge opportunities for arbitrage. And mm-hmm. if you really are serious about analytics and you're looking for players who are skillful, maybe not marketing dreams, but skillful, um, then you can get a lot of bang for your buck. Is it... A coincidence or not that the team that won the MLS Cup title this past season, Portland, 
uh, is the only team in the league that had a, a defender who's a designated player. I wouldn't hang my hat on one player in any <laughs> okay, conclusions, um, but uh, I think that that's a positive trend in some ways, that right. teams are looking beyond the forward line right. for their DPs. Uh, and you could see some goalkeepers being DPs too, uh, given what we spoke about earlier. They're definitely worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can bring a good goalkeeper who's, let's say, still in his early 30s from Europe, you might really run the table in MLS. Hmm. Um, but uh, I, I think that there's plenty of room to spread that money around, and I bet you that I could make a winning team in MLS without any DPs. <laughs> Interesting. I'd like to see that. I've always thought it would be fun to have just one of us uh, you know, put together or be allowed to be a general manager of an MLS team. What's interesting is you're working with MLS teams, so basically you're going to be able to test some of these things out maybe. Well, they're not giving me the keys to the car quite yet, but uh, I, it's nice to be one of the voices that puts some input. And it's always nice to see when you make a recommendation and, and it's eventually heeded by a club mm-hmm. uh, where you know a player that you liked early in the season maybe didn't get his chance right away, but uh, a couple months into the season they go to him and he starts to do well. But that's you know that kind of stuff is subject to idiosyncrasies. You really want to create a record of being right more than wrong over a series of years. You know, one decision shouldn't make or break a career uh, in analytics. Okay. Now, you are scheduled to speak at the famed Sloan Sports Conference up in uh, Boston in March. Uh, Any way to give a slight sneak preview on what you might be addressing? Yeah, I'm going to be talking a little bit about how to analyze the opposition going into a match. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I had some comments and some charts published in The Economist recently looking at how Leicester City plays in the Premier League. They have been playing in a way that we haven't seen in the Premier League for a long time. They play extremely directly. And what's interesting about them is if you force them to play less directly, if you force them to pass laterally, go out to the wings rather than straight up the field, then you slow them down and they're much less effective. So the question is whether teams with this knowledge could really take the sting out of this attack, which has allowed them to lead the Premier League through several of the most recent weeks of the season. And there are a lot of tools that we can use in opposition analysis because we can look not only at players, but we can look at strings of events and how buildups typically happen for different teams, how quickly they go, how they penetrate, where they penetrate. And I think this is one of the most fertile areas for soccer analytics, is really having a detailed report every week on the team that you're going to face and seeing exactly where their strengths and weaknesses are. I mean, you you can make a chart of where their good and bad touches are all over the field on attack and defense, and you can essentially draw paths of where they're weakest in defense and, and where they're strongest in attack, so you know where you need to put your good defenders and you know where what channels your attackers can use. Uh, this is the kind of thing that you, know, you might imagine seeing in an NFL analytics setup uh, but it's just starting to peek into soccer now, and I think it could be really powerful. Is it possible for you to mention one or two uh, pieces you've written that are online and available for listeners to to read? Maybe one that's a little more intro and then one that's a little more advanced just to get an idea more specifically about things you're working on? So there are two introductory pieces that I would recommend Uh, I actually wrote them originally for Bloomberg Sports, which is now part of Stats, uh, when I just started in this field. One is called A New Take on Soccer Analytics, and another is called The Ten Traits of Ideal Soccer Metrics. Nice. 
And they really tell you the attributes that you want to look for when coming up with ways to use data. Mm-hmm. Things like making sure that any metric that you use to evaluate players gives that player the right incentives if he finds out how he's being evaluated. For example, if you say that my metric is how far the player pushes the ball up the field, well, if he finds out that that's how you're evaluating him, he's just going to hoof it up the field anytime the ball comes near him. Uh, so you want to make sure you get good incentives. And, and there are several other traits, uh, including giving it a good name so everybody can remember it. Uh, and then for something that shows some of the application, uh, there's a piece that came out recently on the North Yard Analytics blog called Finding the Weak Link. Mm-hmm. And it's about how to use a sort of sophisticated plus-minus metric uh, called the Shapley value, which comes from economics, mm. to figure out who may be the misfit or the weak, leak on the weak link on the team. Sometimes we find that there are players who are very talented, and we know that they have ability, and they, they even produce lots of passes and shots on the field, uh, but somehow the team performs worse when they're there. Mm. And this is because soccer is such an interconnected game. You know, if, if this guy's shooting a lot, maybe he's hogging the ball and nobody else gets a shot. Uh, so we want to try and identify those cases where somebody has intangible benefits or costs to the team. And this kind of metric helps us to ask the right questions. Okay. It helps us to find out that that person who needs a little more investigation, either through video or talking to his teammates, to see what it is that he's really bringing or what it is that he's really subtracting from the team. So uh, finding the weak link is another one I'd recommend. Uh, if possible, I think uh, on your Twitter feed, at Altman Daniel, um, you'll be able to post this week uh, a couple links to those stories. I uh, would really appreciate that. You should check out his Twitter feed and the North Yard Analytics blog. To say nothing of Argovino.com, the Argentine wine uh, blog that you have, Uh, if you're going to recommend an underrated Malbec, what would it be? An underrated Malbec. Uh, Some of the best uh, bang for your buck in Malbec, so money Malbec, is uh, Tinto Negro, Mm -hmm. which is made by uh, Kolo Sakanovich. Uh, down in Mendoza in, in Western Argentina. It, it's typically not very expensive, $15 a bottle or less, and has some of the most fascinating flavors. I mean, you could be strolling through an Indian market. Uh, <laughs> it's it's really something. So that has my recommendation. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Daniel Altman of North Yard Analytics, at Altman Daniel on Twitter. Thanks for joining the Planet Football Podcast. It's been a real pleasure. How'd your fantasy football team do this season? Not so great. It's all right. Happens to the best of us. Happens to the most of us, actually. Uh, fortunately for you, FanDuel still has games going on. The NFL season is in its conference championship round uh, taking place this weekend. And you can still play one-week fantasy games at FanDuel. Uh, I'm sure you know by now, but FanDuel offers one-week fantasy games uh, where you can win big prizes. You can play in private leagues against friends. It's great. And for the reasons that you hate your season-long fantasy team that ended you know, when your season ended in in week two, uh, you can still win big, uh, even this late in the season. So you think you know fantasy football? Prove it at FanDuel. We've got a special offer for our listeners that you can use on FanDuel.com as well. Uh, Go to the website, click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner, and use our promo code PLANET and sign up now. When you try FanDuel, you'll get a special no-lose offer on your first league. Enter a FanDuel league now, and if you don't win any prize in your first contest, we'll refund your entry up to $10. 
Just deposit, play, and if you don't win, again, we'll refund that first entry up to 10 bucks back into your FanDuel account for additional play. So go to FanDuel.com, click the microphone, and use promo code PLANET. That's FanDuel.com. F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Try it out today. Okay, welcome back. Thank you again, Daniel Altman. Really fascinating stuff. Uh, Grant, he's, he's got just a wealth of wisdom. Uh, it's great that he's able to share that with us. Uh, I want to welcome in Brian Strauss now. Brian, in the uh, snowpocalypse of Arlington, Virginia. Welcome. Thanks. Uh, I'm According according to uh, the warnings, I'm going to starve to death. <laughs> well, I hope don't go Donner party on us with your neighbors and everything. <laughs> I hope uh, I hope that does not happen. Uh, Want to talk some some hot button issues in U.S. soccer? Uh, Benny Felhaber and Jordan Morse uh, are the names in the news. Uh, let's start with Benny Felhaber. He uh, is apparently in IDGAF mode. You can figure out what that acronym means for yourself. Uh, he went off on MLS Media Day talking about uh, how he just doesn't ex- uh, expect to be called in to the U.S. national team under Jurgen Klinsmann anymore. Guys, I want to go true and false uh, with with you both. Uh, both Benny Felhaber and Jurgen Klinsmann have, have talked publicly and, and openly about this. They've made their statements. They've They've given their reasoning. Uh, Grant, let's let's start with you taking Benny Felhaber's claim that Jurgen Klinsmann does not call in the best players available to him. True or false? True, and I'm totally fine with that. Uh, I think any national team coach in the world, in any sport, by the way, it could be basketball, it can be soccer, whatever, um, you don't necessarily want to pick the very, very best players because you want to have chemistry on your team. You need some glue guys. Um, you want to pick the best team that you can to win games. And that's not always an all-star team. And it's the prerogative of the national team coach to make his picks. That's what they're paid to do. Absolutely. Uh, Brian, let's let's go to you now. True or false, Benny Felhaber is not on the international level or on, on my level, I believe what the quote was. Whatever it is that Jurgen Klinsmann said, uh, Benny's not, not U.S. ready right now. Uh, you know, kind of dovetails with what Grant said. I mean, is he in a vacuum uh, good enough to play for the U.S. national team? Of course. Of course he is. He he has technique and vision uh, and an ability to involve teammates and, and see seams that very few American players have. Of course he's good enough. Um, but again, as Grant said, and I agree with him, um, technical ability, soccer ability is only one part of the equation. And you're going to talk from day one about about chemistry, about givers, uh, about about uh, people who who either fit in with the kinds of things he wants to do and the kinds of of of, of environment he wants to create, and 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 guys who may not. And and Benny has known for a while now that he does not fit in with what Jurgen uh, is is trying to to build. I think we're still trying to figure out what he's trying to build, but but it's not going to include Benny Failhaber. And it's not because Benny Failhaber isn't a good soccer player. It's because Benny doesn't fit with Jurgen, just like Landon didn't fit with Jurgen. I mean, we, I mean, Landon was at an international level, and he didn't go to the World Cup. So clearly, there's more at play here than just how how well a guy traps and passes a soccer ball. True that, uh, Grant. Let's go back to you. Jurgen Klinsmann said that uh, in order for Benny Failhaber to crack into this team. He needs to to displace someone else, which is a very factual statement. The, the names that he listed were, were Michael Bradley, Jermaine Jones, Darlington Nagby. Nick Discrude is also in that conversation. True or false, he belongs on the team ahead of any of those guys. I so mean, I, I true, can... I would say he's a he's a better player right now than Nick Discrude. Um, 
he is also older than Mixed Discarude. And when you're building a national team and it's a four-year cycle and you're building for a World Cup, I can certainly understand going with a younger player uh, who has an upside, uh, potentially, uh, that's higher than Benny Failhaber at age 31. Fair enough. Uh, Brian, let's let's cap this off with you. Jurgen Klinsmann said that Benny Failhaber's second half of his last season was, was not that good. Uh, true or false? I suppose it's true. Uh, sporting second half wasn't that good. Uh, the, the, the team slid a bit. They had a lot of injury issues. Uh, you know, uh, Benny was, you know, maybe was tasked with a few different things toward the end of the season than he may have been when everyone was healthy and humming. Um, certainly getting benched for that decision day game uh, against L.A. Uh, for the first half, uh, you know, probably had sort of Klinsman nodding his head and saying, yeah, see this guy, uh, you know, not, not everything is always, you know, unicorns and roses with this guy. Um, but again, you know, you, whether a guy has a, has an on or off uh, two or three months shouldn't be the determining factor about whether he's part of the national team. You're trying to build an issue with this U.S. team for so long has been chemistry and identity and 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 tactical comfort. Um, and so, you know, there are guys who may slip in and out of form, um, but who sort of remain with their clubs, but who sort of remain part of the national team picture. And Benny's not been part of the national team picture now for two years. So I don't think you know, his, his subpar second half had anything more to do with his exclusion than his amazing first half. He's just not part of the picture. right? It's been entertaining at the very least. And it's actually kind of fun to see both of these guys address it and, and air it. I mean, it is what it is at, at this point, And I don't think either side is, is going to change. I mean, I also want to say Benny Failhaber deserved to be on the best 11 in MLS last year. I thought he had overall a very good season. Um, I think, the point Klinsman made that Failhaber didn't stand out in the three January camps he was in is probably a fair point. Uh, and so it's it's something that happens in soccer countries, these types of things. And, um, you know, you can certainly uh, think that it would have been nice to have Benny Failhaber at, at his best on the U.S. team at times last year when they needed someone like him. And I, I do feel that way. But also you can understand why Jürgen Klinsman hasn't brought him in. I think it's also worth asking. I mean, Benny Failhaber certainly proved his World Cup chops in 2010. Um, he was he was a he was a, a, a wonderful super sub for Bob Bradley's team. It really made an impact when he entered the game. Um, and then obviously, there's you know, I guess I'm the only one who's still bewildered by this. But there's the the, the exclusion of Donovan uh, from from the 2014 World Cup team. And I also think it's worth asking. Look, Donovan and Benny may be mercurial guys. You know, they may be guys who can be sort of difficult to read or, or handle or get along with um, at times. But I also think that's a coach's job. I think it's a coach's job not to write guys off uh, who may challenge you, but to, but to figure out a way to get the best out of them. Um, and I wonder if Jurgen uh, did everything he could uh, to get the best out of Landon and the best out of Benny. And I think that's worth asking as well. Absolutely. Fair point. Uh, and again, this, like we've talked about, this happens in other countries too. I mean, Carlos Tevez was left out of Argentina for how long? And, and God, he's one of the world's best strikers. So it, it just, it happens. And, uh, and Hey, it's happening here, U S soccer country. Uh, let's turn to Jordan Morris. Now, uh, the big story, obviously the, the tug of war, the back and forth, Seattle Sounders, where to Bremen It's going to Seattle. Uh, guys, I, I want to take this on a, a little differently. NBA jam style. If you played NBA jam for Sega, which gotta I, I don't even want to know people who haven't. That would be me. <laughs> uh, 
you're, you're, you've got a three man team basically and it's, and it's two on two and you play and it's awesome. Boom, shakalaka, all that stuff. Uh, basically I want to look at MLS and NBA jam terms. If you have a, a three man attacking front line now with Jordan Morris joining the, Se- the Seattle Sounders, who already had a very good three man attacking line with Obafemi Martins, Clint Dempsey and Nelson Valdez. Uh, now you add Jordan to the mix. Let's, let's put Nelson to the back burner. Sorry, buddy. Uh, and, and make it Jordan, Clint Dempsey, Obafemi Martins. If you've got a three man front line, MLS teams, Grant, who is, who is your NBA jam style go-to? First off, I just want to say I love using the term trident in a soccer context. Uh, it's, it's a little like talisman, a kind of a term you only see in certain contexts. Um, so my favorite trident in uh, MLS at this point, you know, from a, a talent perspective, LA has a pretty darn good one. When you look at Robbie Keane, Giovanni Dos Santos, Jassy Zardes. Uh, sounds like Zardes is going to play a little more up front this year. Um, and, you know, at its best, I, I think that's the the best one in MLS. And I like the fact that uh, there's competitors for that now. Absolutely. They also added Mike McGee back into that to that mix. You wouldn't expect him to start over any of those other three, but that's he's the Nelson Valdez of, of the LA Galaxy. Brian, if you had a, a, a an NBA Jam Trident uh, to pick for, for MLS, who you got? Can I, can I make a can I make a Gen X NBA Jam analogy? Please. Uh, for, for for Gen Xers out there, you remember the Atari Pele soccer, and then it had the three guys that always moved together in a triangle, <laughs> like that, right? You just you just moved the you moved the joystick, and the triangle of three players would move around the field. Maybe that's the better parallel here. So yeah, um, you know, and then and then obviously it, uh, you know growing up in DC at the start of MLS, you know there was. Uh, uh, you know, Moreno, Echeverry, and, and Diaz Arce here at DC United, sort of the first one. And then, there, of course, there was the trip, famous triple-edged sword uh, for the 91 Women's World Cup team, uh, Akers, uh, Gabera, and, and Heinrichs. Nice. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with, I, which is as cool as Trident, triple-edged sword. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I agree with Grant. I mean, certainly LA is formidable. I, I, I think coming off of the 2015 season, you also got to look at Columbus, you know, Kai Kamara scoring all those goals. Uh, Ethan Finley, j- just a dynamic uh, slasher off the wing who could who could go at people, who could get in behind, um, and then take your pick from either uh, Higuain as a, as a playmaker or or Justin Merrim as as a as a guy you can create on the left. Um, and, and I think Columbus has an attacking trio that is as good as anyone's in the league. Fair point. Um, I might take Seattle at this point. Some some of the other options that we were talking about. Uh, Real Salt Lake, sneaky option. It's like the Golden State Warriors of that NBA Jam game where clearly weren't the best team, but like when it's just two on two, they've they've got the pieces. Uh, they just brought back Aram Sissian. You throw in Burrito Martinez and Joao Plata. That's pretty good. Uh, a pretty good triple edged sword. Uh, Toronto FC got Javinko and and Josie Altador and Hercules Gomez. Uh, FC Dallas, you've got Fabian Castillo, Moro Diaz, uh, Michael Berrios. They also just added Maxi Ruti into that mix. Uh, a lot of good attacking trios. Uh, Kansas City. Kansas City, right. My bad. Uh, Dom Dwyer. They, they just brought in Brad Davis, Graham Zussi in that mix. Uh, Port, Portland, Adi, uh, Nagby, and Valeri. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So Champs. I, I think we just need to send a, a pitch to EA Sports now to make NBA Jam MLS or MLS Jam. Or the MLS Board of Governors could save a ton of money just by making all MLS games three on three. <laughs> this, 
This is this is this is think tank stuff right now. This is this is where all the genius happens. I will say this: after MLS Media Day this week out in LA, where they brought in twenty five players uh, from all the different teams, uh, after uh, all the stuff that happened in Baltimore with access to the coaches and GMs, I'm really fired up for this MLS season and don't really want to wait until March sixth. You're gonna have to. Sorry. CONCACAF Champions League starts before that, though, True. Uh, next month. So that's that's coming up. Uh, and again, Jordan Morris to the Seattle Sounders. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how how this all works out. Uh, so much was made of this move, uh, whether it's good for him, whether it's good for U.S. soccer, whether Jurgen Klinsmann hates MLS, whatever. Uh, I, I think we can all agree that it's a good fit. He knows the team. He knows his father works for the team. He knows the coaching staff. And uh, he's obviously proven his chops on the international level so far uh, and in the collegiate level. It's a, it's a good fit, and if he can get on the field, which is going to be a challenge for him uh, in that team, he's going to have every chance to succeed. Uh, so that's something that we will keep an eye out for when the MLS season comes around. Uh, and with that, we are going to put a wrap on this week's podcast. I want to thank Ben Littleton for joining us earlier, Daniel Altman, Brent Strauss, Grant Wall, our stud producer Alex Abnos. If you haven't listened to his segment on college soccer uh, that we had on last week's podcast, I definitely implore you to do so. Really cool stuff, uh, very serial-esque. Uh, so give that listen uh, if you can please give us your feedback your comments uh to all of us on on twitter on soundcloud stitcher planet football in in every medium and please stop fake accounting brian strauss and grant wall and making up news that they did not report uh with that i am Ava creditor we'll talk to you next week on the planet football podcast about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.